Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, commentary contributor, uh, lawyer, legal analyst, American Enterprise Institute scholar, head of the Boyden Gray something or other at George Mason University, head of five task forces and 17 commissions, Adam White. Adam. Thanks. Hi, I, that number 17 is either is either absurdly low or ridiculously high. I'm not sure which, but basically, if there's a commission involving law, Adam is probably going to be on it. Uh, and so uh, we turn to Adam for our uh, legal advice and uh, legal not not legal advice like, you know, like uh, real estate, you know, our real estate contracts, but. Speak for yourself. He's my first phone call if I ever get arrested. Just saying. Okay, there you go. Okay, so Adam, middle of the day yesterday, out of nowhere, judge in Florida. That's it. Mass <laughs> mandate gone. So it's an interesting decision because um, it has nothing to do with, except in the largest sense, human freedom, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's about whether or not the mask mandate itself was properly uh, administratively presented and supported uh, according to administrative law in the United States, right? That's right, John. And I want to be very clear, uh, we do not have an attorney-client relationship, so don't even think about uh, calling without signing a, a retainer first. Uh, but yeah, the, the case that came out of Florida yesterday, there's basically two parts to it. Um, the part that I, that I think is most compelling is the judge telling the Biden administration, you didn't go through the process you need to go through to impose this mask mandate. It's a sort of a, just a pretty mundane issue of administrative law. There was another issue where the judge sort of parses the, the underlying statute that authorizes the administration in certain circumstances to take measures in the public health. And, and this, this trial judge, the federal district judge in Florida, concluded that actually, the, regardless of the procedural issue, the Biden administration just didn't have substantive legal authority to do this at all. I think that part of the opinion was a bit more of a stretch. But on the administrative law process issue, I think the judge got it exactly right. So let's let's uh, let's talk this through. So in other words, uh, mask mandate is, I think, put in place at the beginning of 2021 even though, as I recall, most people were compelled to wear masks anyway uh, or something. But um, so it's in place in 2021. And there's a process according to which when you impose these rules for health reasons, there needs to be a period of comment, right? And uh, if you, uh, in, in, you know, if, if you have a administrative agency imposing an administrative rule that controls people and she said basically it's one thing to have to put this like to to um have a administrative agency say airlines have to do something or a business has to do something or something like that but not that an agency has the power to compel individuals to comply with such rules do i have that do i have that right judge mazelle 
Yeah, that's basically right. And just by way of background, I think your memory is right. That's how I remember it too, that in 2020, we didn't have this mask mandate come out of the Trump administration. In fact, there were news stories in late 2020 about how the CDC had tried to tee up a mask mandate and the White House had had stopped them from doing it. Uh, right upon taking office the next year, Biden signs this executive order telling the agencies to get moving on this. And just a couple of weeks after that, the CDC puts out this mandate for masks on trains, planes, uh, buses, and so on. Um, and right, the, the basic procedure issue is the agency didn't go through notice and comment. Uh, normally, when an agency makes a regulation, they have to sort of preview it. They have to put out a notice in the Federal Register, which, like me, I'm sure you all read every morning, um, just a description of what the rule is going to say. Then they have to leave some time for comments, at least a couple of weeks, uh, usually about a month or a little more than a month. And then they publish the final rule and explain why it is that they're going forward with it. And by the way, this isn't even the most formal process for making regulations. I mean, set aside, it's not a legislative process. Sometimes in rare circumstances, the agencies have to do even a lot more than this. This basic notice and comment process is what we lawyers call informal rulemaking. It's like business casual rulemaking. You're just you know, going through a process, it's not too onerous. The administration just skipped all of that. And they invoked a provision of the Administrative Procedure Act that says for good cause, an agency can just avoid the notice and comment process. Um, there's more to it than that. We can get into it if you want. But the agency just said, here's the rule. And we're not doing notice and comment because it's an emergency. Okay, so let's go back to the politics, because this is very interesting. Like the, there was a mask mandate and it was imposed by all airlines and by all public, you know, by all transport systems right. uh, pre-vaccine, right? Everybody, the idea was, okay, everyone's going to wear a mask. And there was no, you know, it wasn't like uh, Trump wasn't going to put this on. The Trump administration wasn't going to put it on because the this was a matter of private businesses protecting themselves and protecting their employees and then protecting their customers. Right. So that was all, that was all above board and part of a voluntary, but entirely almost uh, airless system, right. Airtight system where everybody wanted to do this because th there were no mitigation measures, vaccines come in and Trump loses the election and Biden comes in and wants to be seen as a warrior against COVID. So in February, 2021 imposes a mask mandate at the federal level, because this is him showing that he, unlike Trump, isn't going to, you know, isn't going to stand by while this terrible disease spreads. And the judge, Judge Mazzell, put it this way in her opinion. The CDC issued the mandate in February 2021, almost two weeks after the president called for a mandate, 11 months after the president had declared COVID-19 a national emergency, and almost 13 months since the Secretary of Health and Human Services had declared a public health emergency. This history suggests that the CDC itself did not find the passage of time particularly serious. In other words, CDC decides it wants to impose a mask mandate on, on transport. Uh, there already was effectively a mask mandate, as I say, privately. Um, why couldn't they have taken four weeks to go through a comment period? They didn't go through four weeks of comment period, I think, because I think we all understand ideologically Biden wanted to be seen to be using emergency powers to take down COVID by any means necessary. And now it's 14 months after that. And they were extending the mask mandate another two weeks. It was supposed to effectively probably was supposed to end today. Right. And then two weeks ago, they say they're not going to they're not going to drop it until 
May 1st. And I think what the decision says is on the basis of what? At any point in this process, you could have had, you could have gone through the proper motions and measures where you have a common period in which then the airlines or whatever get to make their case, right? That there's something wrong or right about this or individuals get to have their say, right comment, whatever. And then, and then the CDC makes the finding anyway. Yeah, that's right. And, and by the way, there was also a way for the agency to kind of have it both ways. They could have just announced this emergency rule. And then at the, in the same document said, we're also kicking off the notice and comment process. And then a month later, finalized the original interim, we call it an interim final rule, uh, finalized that rule. And so you just have seamless coverage. It's like a double mask, John. It's like wearing one mask over the other. You get your, your interim, uh, your, your emergency rule up front, and then you get the added layer of protection of notice and comment after that. It's very interesting that the administration didn't even bother doing that. And as the judge points out, other rules that came out of, uh, of I don't think it was the CDC, I think it was HHS, was much more rigorous in sort of spelling out why, the, why, why they were dispensing with notice and comment. On this mask mandate, they, the administration clearly did not want to invite comments, didn't want to have to grapple with comments, because I think they understood that, that both legally, in terms of the, the, the laws they were administering, and also just the facts and science, was a lot more nebulous than they wanted to let on. I, I wonder about that. That's why I brought up what I said before, which is I think they literally did not want to follow ordinary procedure because they wanted to make it clear that they were treating this as an emergency. And an emergency was I, the president, am imposing a nationwide mask mandate everywhere that I have the power to do so. Federal buildings, federal lands, and because of the way the the transportation system works, on all matters of public transport or things that fall under the aegis of public airplanes, airports, train stations, all of that. They wanted to do it outside normal procedure. That was the point. Doing it, if they'd done it according to normal procedure, that would not have had the frisson of emergency, I am coming in to stop COVID. I am the COVID killer. I am the man who was stopping COVID, unlike unlike that uh, bum who, you know, who, who refused to use his powers to do so. That, by the way, also explains why the administration is acting like they've just been thrown in the briar patch. Oh, they're so disappointed by this ruling. Very disappointing. And yet extremely coy about whether they're going to appeal it. Meanwhile, TSA drops enforcement of this mandate hours after ostensibly to comply with the law hours after it was initiated, released. And then you have private industries like Uber all of a sudden going ahead and saying, oh, we're going to drop it too. Local metro stations, our metro department in uh, uh, D.C. saying we're going to drop the mask mandate. All of this cascading after this one decision that everybody's so disappointed with and is just so complicating our COVID response. Nobody's upset by this, right? The only people who are freaked out about it are the the people who are hypochondriacs on Twitter. the CDC. So this is a this is a conundrum for Biden, the Biden administration, though, because if they go with that and they don't appeal, they're kind of throwing the CDC under the bus. Right. In terms of credibility. Um, at the same time, About the rea- time. The ex- I agree. But the reaction among the hardcore covid forever folks is so instructive in the last, you know, 12 hours. I feel like they need to it, Biden needs to come out and be like, 
if you, if you like your mask, you can keep your mask. Like he needs some sort of messaging to calm these people down because they're, they're losing their minds and they're, but that goes to the point, Adam, that I think you're making earlier and John that you brought up, they didn't want the public comments because masking's effectiveness as a matter of public health has always been something that's been debated and questioned even before COVID. And if we look to the European example, particularly with masking young children, they were never doing this. So I think the, the alternative narrative that would have developed from public comment that became public record was, was I think plenty of people in the Biden administration and certainly at the CDC didn't want to see that story told. Okay, I, think we I should also say that oh, the, yeah, uh, go ahead, Abe, the, the popular reaction, not among the, the COVID hawks, you know, when the announcement was made in airports and, and on planes mid-flight was like, you know, cheering and applauding, of course, you know, and so the administration has got to be cognizant of that, I think. I have I all know. The, of all the reactions that we've seen, most of them come most strongly from airplane workers or people who work at airports or on airplanes. They seem ecstatic. It's the first time they've been able to take off their mask in a work in the work environment in two years. And it's Why not just that. Too? It's not just that. It's also that they are they are no longer the COVID police. They are no longer. I mean, I was on planes. I was on I was on planes, you know, twice, the, twice this weekend uh, to and from Chicago. And, you know, they got to walk down the aisles and say, put your mask on. And, you know, they don't want to do that. They don't know what, you know, what lunatic or what enraged person is going to like start challenging them. And then they have to make some kind of a decision about how far to take their disciplinary action and attitude. It was an incredible imposition on these people that they had to enforce some rule that wasn't stay, you know, keep your seatbelt on. As, right? as I, I said, mean, when I came, when I flew back from Palm Beach, the 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 mask announcement on the plane was the 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 flight attendant was pleading, sort of making an argument about, you know, saying, look, this isn't our rule. It's not a state rule. It's not the company's rule. This is this is a federal law. This is what this is what we have to almost saying, sorry, we don't like it either. You know, that was that was the sort of uh, subtext. Right. OK, so almost instantaneously after the decision, uh, two uh, places said they were not going to lift the mask mandates. Uh, L.A.'s uh, and California's transportation system and New York City's. OK, now I want to I, I, I'm bringing this up, not again, because I'm obsessed with New York City, though I live here. But um, I then looked up, uh, there's a website called the city.nyc, uh, uh, which is a sort of local news website that has been keeping, it's the only place you can find a very specific coronavirus tracker for New York City alone. So I just want to uh, point out to you, New York City, three and a half million people ride the subways every day. That's down 50%, by the way, from where it was before the, before the pandemic, which is one of the reasons that the subways are in such problematic shape. But we can talk about that a little later. Um, in New York City, uh, as of uh, today or yesterday, the share of New York City residents who are vaccinated is 87%. 87%. The actual f hard number, hold on, 6,494,960 New York City residents are fully vaccinated. Three and a half million people ride the subways every day. We don't know who's who, right? Population of the city is eight and a half million. 6.5 million are fully vaccinated. 
we obviously have cases under five. I don't know how many, you know, I don't know what percentage of the population of the city is under five. Generally speaking, it's, uh, they're sort of, uh, I don't know, four million live births nationally in a year or so. If you, but whatever, it's probably like ten or twelve, maybe ten percent or something. I don't know, five percent. So that takes you up to people who can't be vaccinated up to around seven million. They're keeping masking on. And by the way, let's talk about subways for a minute. Okay, subways are ventilated. Subways are fully. Subways are like uh, are like planes, right? They have endlessly recirculating air, right? Stations are very heavily are very heavily ventilated. They have grates. They have they have multiple staircases. There's a lot of air coming into them. There aren't that many that are buried far underground. So why, pray tell, in a city where 87% of people are vaccinated, and where there are twice the number of people are vaccinated as are actually riding the subways on a daily basis, why is the mask mandate? not being lifted uh, in accordance with this finding of a judge in Florida. I, I, I'm, I'm actually throwing that out as a, as a question for, for well, it's, answer. I think we, we're all not answering because we think it's very rhetorical, in part because we all kind of know the answer, and the answer is politics, ideology, and the desperate need to convey to your neighbors around you that you're not one of those crazy Republicans who has not wanted to take maximum measures against COVID that for the last two years, you've been told that those people were literal murderers, not figurative, literally trying to kill people with their callousness and self-obsession. And you're demonstrating your willingness to sacrifice for the greater good. An yeah, outward I just wanna... demonst- a visible outward demonstration of sacrifice for an ideology um, that's that's a tantalizing message, and nobody wants to be the first to to get on with it. But the, this ruling suggests that once somebody does get on with it, is the first person, then the dam breaks. I, I just want to let listeners know who, who don't live in New York that the public transportation and the, the masking, um, it's not just required, at least on the, the subway, which is what I take primarily, Masking is sort of the theme of the subway. I mean, there are, you know, camp public, you know, uh, campaigns with all sorts of cart instructional cartoons, you know, uh, uh, telling you how to mask and not to have preferably not to talk even once once you are masked up um, and then, you know, sort of keep yourself and keep your mask on. So it would be such a massive sort of thematic reversal. Um, just regarding the, the the New York City public transportation, that they they are of course going to lag behind everyone. I, I you know, we have this issue. Uh, we talked about it a lot uh, in relation to this very largest public transportation system in the United States, where there's this galloping crime, right? Crazy people taking over the city. They're pushing people on subway tracks. There, you know, there's the, obviously the horrible subway shooting uh, last week. Um, all of that, I I will stipulate for the record or postulate or whatever that the subway subway crime will drop precipitously the minute that people are allowed to take their masks off. The weirdness of life on the New York City subway system, 75% of it will be over when you can see the faces of the people you're standing next to or sitting across from on the subway. 
because as we talked about from the beginning of this pandemic onward, the denial to people of the facial signals and facial behavior, facial expressions of others creates an interpretive disaster, an emotionally interpretive disaster where somebody who is themselves high-strung, schizophrenic, whatever, may see in someone's entirely passive eye, you know, uh, view above their mask and around their eyes, hostility, rage, you know, something that triggers something that causes an attack that could, could have been prevented by having the full face shown, a totally bland expression, a smile, uh, a friendly, you know, whatever, uh, shrug, uh, looking down, whatever. It's something that uh, denies you the ability or, 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 or mitigates the effect of this problem of the kind of what are you looking at thing, which becomes 10,000 times more potent when there's nothing else on the face. And, um, you know, we are at a time of great challenge and choosing for Eric Adams, the new mayor of New York City, who has, you know, was elected with the promise that he would he would be the guy to end crime and crime is rising all over the city. Last week was a terrible, terrible week for crime. I mean, crime was essentially up about 20 percent from the week before. I mean, no, no jokes or major crimes. Um, he is on the verge of this, you know, very promising kind of third way democratic effort to, you know, be like a tough on crime, you know, uh, cop formerly critical of the police department, you know, African-American who wants to, you know, do something about crime and all of that. He's on the verge of losing every single um, positive attribute that he had that got him elected. Uh, and um, if he just simply surrenders to this um, public health lunacy and continues to allow masking on the subway, which I, as I say, I think I, there's no way of proving this, but is a contributor to the darkness of the subway. Um, you know, that's it. He's been in office for three months. The crime rate is going up. Uh, we're go, we have massive inflation. Uh, if a recession is coming, Wall Street is going to bear a lot of the brunt of it, and they're going to be, you know, they're we're going to have the city's going to have a lot less money in its coffers. He better he better be he better think on this very carefully and not just have a gut reaction, which is no, we're going to keep the masking on. Eighty-seven percent vaccination rate in New York City, with at least three percent, let's say, uh, under under five, you know, so it's ninety percent among those who can't even vaccinate. Guess how many people died of COVID in New York, um, I think on April 8th, which is the last day for the actual death numbers I could find, three. Guess how many cases, New York State is now separating out cases of uh, people with COVID from people who were admitted to hospitals because of COVID or came into hospitals with COVID but were admitted for other reasons. Number of admissions for COVID, 149. Number of admissions with COVID, 195. So we are now at a point at which this uh, more accurate statistical rendering shows that more people are being hospitalized for diseases other than COVID while having COVID than, other, than, than are otherwise the case. And I'm going to cite one other little factoid, if I can find it, if you give me just one second. This is from Zeynep Terfeki uh, in The Atlantic. 
on the rarity of reinfections within 60 days, even with variant shifts, right? That's the issue now. It's, oh yeah, I'm vaccinated, but everybody I know is still getting Omicron. Everybody I know is still get, is getting BA2. Indeed, I was vaccinated and I got Omicron. Okay, but guess what? Uh, that's not normal. It's actually not normal that I got Omicron, even though I was vaccinated. Out of 56,831 cases, only 91 reinfections and shift from Delta to Omicron. Now, I didn't have Delta, so maybe that doesn't really count. So that's 0.16%. Out of 48,829 cases, only five reinfections from BA1, that was Omicron, to BA2. That's the now variant that now is 90% of the country. That's the that's the sub-Omicron variant that we're hearing is so dangerous. Okay. Only five reinfections, 0.01%. The COVID pandemic is over. The judge, now here's my question. Let's move on to politics. Has the judge done the Biden administration a favor by letting them, by, by saying, okay, the mask mandate is off. Biden doesn't have to say the mask mandate is off. They can just let it die, let it go away. Yes, obviously. <clears throat> they can have it both ways. They can say they're very disappointed. They cannot appeal it, which they don't seem to be doing. I mean, maybe they will, but they haven't demonstrated any willingness to do it. They haven't said they're going to. The extent to which everybody moved in the same direction at once over this in, in, in the wake of this decision um, suggests this was all very pent up and, and a, a desire to do this. I mean, this is not something that should be new or, or shocking. All these airlines appealed to the administration to get rid of this. The United States Senate voted in favor of getting rid of this mandate to the tune of 57 votes in the affirmative. The, the nation has been demonstrating its desire here uh, in very plain terms for quite some time. And this administration, as I've said for a very long time, and it's pretty evident to everybody, has been hijacked by a very unrepresentative, ideologically motivated pressure group. And they're so desperate to mistake? get out from under the pressure. Okay, wait, so wait, wait. Abe, yeah, but hold this on, a mistake. I, Go ahead. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's a given that, that this is a favor to the Biden administration on balance, because at the same time, it reinforces the perception that the administration is hapless, ineffective, and doesn't know what the hell it's doing. This is, this is not the first mandate that, that, that the courts have shut down on Biden. Um, he's come up against this before on the vaccine mandates. Um, the so I moratorium. think it kind of exposes them as being theatrical in these things, um, not not dotting their I's and crossing their T's um, and and being hapless. OK, so this is my question. Like, so is it not a favor because it would actually help the Biden administration to say, we have looked at the data and we are lifting. I, Joe Biden, Biden gives a speech and not at 1030 in the morning with the Easter bunny behind him. I mean, he, or two Easter bunnies. Uh, he gives a speech in which he says the mask mandate is over. We have moved from pandemic to endemic. Everybody needs to be careful. If you have symptoms, you should stay home. Yeah, blah, blah. You need to, everybody needs to get vaccinated, but we, but the, the period of emergency is gone, is over. He doesn't get to do that now he clearly doesn't want to do it they're worried about a mission accomplished moment they already had the victory over covid moment in in may or june of 2021 you know the celebration of the fourth of july of 2021 and all of that 
but I don't know. I don't, I think it's bad. I think they could really use a moment in which he gets to say after two years, we are, we are done with this. People are still going to get sick. People we're moving into what people said two years ago. We're moving into the period in which we need, we're treating this like the flu. He cannot do that moment after being, after getting a judicial smackdown, like the one he just got, he can't do it now. It's too late. Like he, you know, that. I don't think there's a way for him to message this that that makes them look like anything other than what Abe just said, hapless, leading from behind, reactionary rather than than forward looking. And and their inconsistency of messaging, not just the actual messages coming out of the CDC, but Biden himself, whether he wears a mask or not. It's like a game of where's Waldo whenever he's outside walking to Marine One. He's got a mask on. He's indoors, you know, glad handing with politicians. No mask. It makes no sense. And I think that's the general feeling. And, and Democrats don't want to be the party of mass mandates any longer, however much some of their very hardcore voters would like them to be. They know, they the party knows that this is bad for them as optics going into summer, in particular with summer travel. Okay, I want to get Adam in on this, though, because the administration has defied the courts before when they have an ideological motive that they're pursuing with the eviction moratorium. They've got a very clear signal from the Supreme Court, let the eviction moratorium end. They said, sure, and then just didn't do it. And then just re-implemented it, forcing them to get a really firm slap on the wrist from the Supreme Court. If they wanted to be very, you know, aggressive about this, they would have been more active, suggesting that they would appeal it, filing paperwork to appeal it. By now, it's been hours. Um, if they were, Adam, if they were really intent on defying the courts here, we would be seeing signals to that effect. Yes, that's right. That's right. I agree with that. And I'd say what you really look for. Set aside the question about whether they appeal. That's complicated. I'll explain in a second. But what they haven't done, at least as far as I've seen as we tape this, is they haven't gone to the Court of Appeals in the 11th Circuit and asked them to just freeze the lower court's decision, right? The normal course of action, especially for an emergency measure, would be to go right to the 11th Circuit and say, court, please just put this decision on hold while we file our appeal, right? Just hold everything in place, the status quo, and just give us a chance to appeal on an accelerated time frame. It's the fact that they haven't done that that suggests that they're welcoming, in a way, this decision. They might still appeal regardless, because after all, there's a second part to this decision where the district court said that regardless of the procedural point, they don't have the statutory authority to do this kind of mask mandate at all in transportation. That's a huge decision. And I again, I think that the judge... It's not clear to me she actually got that right. Um, it's a it's a complicated statutory interpretation question. The administration, the Justice Department, the agencies might want to appeal that issue regardless for just to preserve their options in the future for this or other emergency health measures. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if they appeal. But it's the fact that they didn't move to stay the decision that I think is the tell. Okay, so let's. Uh, let me just make one uh, glib point here, which is uh, one one way in which you could say the Biden administration's uh, bacon is is being saved here um, is um, is on Title Forty Two, the big, uh, highly controversial decision to uh, to um, end the Trump administration policy of turning everybody away from the border on the grounds that we have a health emergency from COVID and which of course the Department of Homeland Security had announced last month, uh, it was lifting now that COVID was no longer an emergency, it being the only department in the US government that apparently had decided that COVID was no longer an emergency since we were all still masking and since the CDC 
uh, and uh, and I think HSS both actually extended whatever thing they have to say that COVID is still an emergency. So, uh, so, uh, Javier Becerra, the uh, home, um, whatever. Okay, so so they've lifted Title Forty Two. So congratulations, because the judge now has basically said, okay, effectively we no longer consider this an emergency, except that there is a full-on, four-square, unbelievable revolt in Democratic ranks, particularly in people who have to face voters in November on this announcement that they are going to liberalize uh, uh, asylum and migration and whatever policy at the, at the Mexican border, having had, I believe, a mil- having arrested a million people so far this year at the border. And with the summer coming, the expected <clears throat> surge of migrants at the border, who, by the way, are no longer just <clears throat> South American. Apparently, uh, there are a lot of Mexicans, and there haven't been Mexicans for the last 10 years. It's not like just Guatemalans and El Salvadorians and people who are coming through Mexico trying to get to the border. But there are also tens of thousands of Ukrainians who have somehow gotten to Mexico and are trying to cr- cross Um so congratulations to the Biden administration. Now it's uh, Title 42 policy apparently is um, has, has been has been koshered by this judge in, in Florida just exactly when they might have benefited from somebody saying, no, 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 it's a terrible emergency. And then Biden saying, well, you know, we actually still have a COVID health emergency, so we better stay this instead of going forward with it. This is a very big deal. Like, I know nobody who reads the New York Times and the Washington Post understands what a big deal this is, but every Demo- every Democratic senator uh, who is in a re-election frenzy and fight has come out against suspending this uh, or lifting it or whatever. Uh, the t- two very left-wing candidates for Senate in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin and, and John Futterman in Pennsylvania have both come out I mean, no one is more left wing than Mandela Barnes. Like she is like she is like, you know, take uh, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley and and AOC and put 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 them in a blender and you come out with uh, Mandela Barnes. And she doesn't. She says you shouldn't lift it. The head of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee says don't do this. Like this is talk about hapless. Talk about getting your own policies blindsiding you politically, Abe. This is like. I don't even know what to compare this to in terms of a in terms of an unforced error that is causing, you know, agita and grief just at a moment when, you know, you just have everything lined up against you. Can I can I also add there's another messaging thing here that the that the Democrats have long missed, which is choice saying to Americans, it's your choice whether or not to put that mask on. That's what I mean, if you look even I think it was the United on, on their social media accounts, United when it announced yesterday that it was immediately dropping the mask mandate, phrased it like that. It's like, you don't have to wear it, but if you choose to, you you can. It's up to you. That's a very powerful message that has been denied Americans for almost two years now in so many aspects of their daily life that they tended to assume they had control over. Like, would their kids go to school? 
how would they go to school? Would they be able to sit inside or outside? Could they eat lunch? Could they speak to each other at lunch? All these little minute details over the course of several years have been taken away for an emergency, which most people agreed to do for a while. But the way that it's being given back by when Democrats speak of this, it's as if they're giving us something that we don't have a right to already. And that's condescending. And it gets people really angry, I think. And I think the way that a lot of these companies are doing it is, is smart. And candidates on either side of the aisle who talk about it this way are smart too, to say, you have a choice here. You weigh your risks because we trust your judgment as, as, a, as a, you know, an American. But I think that uh, that message, uh, that it's your choice, you can wear one if you want to, is, has been complicated by all the rounds of um, sort of BS storytelling about masks. Yes. See, other people wear their masks to protect you. Right. You wear your mask to protect them. Now we should be wearing two masks now. So the idea that, oh, well, I'll just wear one mask and be around all these people who aren't protecting me um, right. is now like a problem. Right. There's a kind of compulsory community feeling that was that was talked about that was never true scientifically. Like one way masking works, wearing it, wearing a 95 year protected that. But they wanted everyone to mask. So that message was manipulated. You're absolutely right. We just went through like it was a week ago that the city of Philadelphia reimposed mask mandates, after which the whole public health apparatus came out and had this big debate with itself, Liana Wen being like, oh, this is kind of counterproductive. What if we need to do this later when it really actually matters, suggesting that it doesn't now? And then anti-Fauci coming out and saying, oh no, this is probably smart and we should probably look at this another way. And then all of a sudden this goes away overnight, literally overnight, suggesting that nobody's listening to these people anymore except extremely liberal functionaries in extremely liberal urban enclaves. Okay, but I think some of this is literal is, is literal stupidity. I hate to use stupidity as a as an explanation for political decision making, but you know, when you're talking about urban politicians, you're talking often about a pretty low level type of politician in the United States sometimes and um what we have here is that cases are rising. I mean, that that's why people are talking about, that's why Philadelphia reimposed the mask. That's why people are saying, oh my God, we're doing this at a time when cases are rising. This is crazy. And what we actually have is cases rising and, and bad outcomes falling at the same time, thus indicating exactly what it is that we would wish to see, which is that COVID is getting less potent, less virulent, vaccination is working, and that you can get it and it can have no effect on you, which is actually what happened to me personally and happened to my family personally. But it doesn't really matter whether or not it happened to me personally. This is what the actual epidemiological data show is that cases are up, hospitalizations continue to go down and deaths continue to go down and ICU numbers continue to go down. There has now been a break between cases and, the, and, and outcomes and that is very that's hard for not very intelligent people who have been focused on cases for the last two years and look at this one number to make sense out of. And that, I think, is what explains Philadelphia and what explains these fourth rate hacks who work in the public health bureaucracies, who also have a vested interest, of course, in maintaining their power over people's behavior and why it is that they that they could not adjust to a new reality in which the case numbers don't mean anything and should not be used as a benchmark or barometer for anything. Have we ever used case numbers as a benchmark for anything? Have we ever used flu case numbers as a benchmark for anything? 
No, because what matters is the effect of disease, not 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 the not the fact that people test positive for a disease or seem to have the disease. It's whether the healthcare system gets involved in treating them. And that's you know, that's all there is to it. I, I just want to go on to one last thing, which is the judge in, in this case, Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell. Uh, the decision seemed to me to be well-drafted, intelligently reasoned, um, uh, you know, rel- you know, literate. I mean, it's not a, it's not beautiful prose, but perfectly literate. And as Adam says, maybe arguable, you know, in some of its more dramatic conclusions and the response to her finding here was an out, was an outpouring of, of, um, of venom on Twitter because she's young and was appointed by Trump. And because, of course, being appointed by Trump and being young and during the lame duck session, uh, the, you know, the American Bar Association found her not qualified, but she was pushed through by Mitch McConnell in the Senate anyway. Um, uh, Adam, uh, as a as a judicial and judicial nomination and strategy of nominating young people. So you have people on the bench for 50 years thing. Having seen this decision, do you, did, did, did it strike you that it was the work of somebody, you know, pathologically immature and horribly, you know, uh, uh, biased? No, not at all. Not at all. This is definitely within the 40 yard lines, even on the parts where, I, like you said, I'm a little I'm not I'm not yet convinced by the first part of the decision. Uh, it's not unreasonable. Um, it's well within uh, the what the Supreme Court has laid out in its covid era decisions and in earlier decisions about how to interpret the law that agencies are are, are are administering. So I thought it was a totally reasonable decision. And and yeah, she's now facing all these attacks and that's a, a sign of, of, of the times. Um, and, and again, I just having served on President Biden's court commission, um, you know, I'm, I'm told often that we need to protect the courts as an institution um, from those who want to tear them down. And I agree with that. And I think that the, uh, the attacks on this judge are just the latest example of it. Um, but here we are. Wait, one more thing. What do you make of the sudden uh, shift on, on the progressive left <clears throat> toward skepticism of judicial activism yeah. and the enumerated powers? And, you know, the, the uh, usurpation of uh, of the authority of elected officials to unelected courts. Uh, this is yeah. all of a sudden I'm like, well, I, re- I remember that. I remember when yeah. that used to be relevant. Yeah, we're going through a generational shift on both the left and the right um, of, of, over the power of courts. And they're, you know, 30 years ago, Justice Scalia, having seen courts micromanage the Nixon, Ford and Reagan administrations, right, helped lead the way in, in getting the Supreme Court and lower courts to be more deferential. To agencies, and and for the last ten years, you've seen conservatives and libertarians reconsider that, and and the same thing is happening uh, on the left for certain. John, John, can I throw in one last big picture thing? I know please. you want to move on, but just one thing. No, no, please. Uh, you know the the story about this mask mandate and and what's come since then. It's it's worth just reflecting on it one more time. This all started with President Biden's executive order, right? Comes into office and says, agencies go make these rules. One of the basic facts of government today and in the executive branch, which is basically all of our government now in policymaking, is that with each election and the run-up to the election, you have this entire sort of shadow government come together, lawyers and policy wonks on, on both parties, coming up with all these executive orders and playbooks on what they're going to do on day one through 100. Um, and so the, the Biden administration surely came to office with the executive order drafted and, and the playbook for what they're going to do the first 100 days. That's a f- feature of both parties now. 
but with no real understanding of how you're going to grapple with actual governance beyond the first 100 days, how you're going to react to new facts, how you're going to keep energy in government, get the agencies moving forward, but being reactive to reality. Um, what we're seeing now is not just administrative state governance, it's administrative state in the first 100 days, right? And, and of sort of a first move, but with no real plan for what happens after that. And so it's not just that our government is being compressed to the first two years of a presidential term, it's being compressed to the first two months of a presidential term. And everything after that is, is, is reactive and not even in a very smart way. I think that's a really interesting point. If we go back to the first days of the Trump uh, administration, Trump got off on a terribly bad foot because it was he was absolutely determined to impose this travel ban, um, which I think, it, you know, which it's not that the travel ban wasn't arguable on the basis of the National Security Act of 1952, but it was extremely badly drafted. You know, Trump did not have good staff. Uh, and, 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 you know, and you had this kind of like national revolt at the airports and stuff like that. Everything was, everything was chaos. And yeah, it sort of fit this Steve Bannon model of like creating chaos for the purposes of exposing the, you know, the left's garbage or whatever. Um, but, you know, Trump didn't win a second term and the seeds of one of the reasons he didn't win a second term were present that day. You could say the same thing, by the way, about Biden and 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 all and that executive order saying, let's go, we're going to kill COVID off um, because it was this weird self-confidence that um, that uh, there was a new sheriff in town and he had won election and they were going to start abiding by entirely new rules, top down rules that then infected the way that they behaved in the first six months and 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 was part of the delusional fantasy that he could be LBJ or J or or you know or FDR. Yeah. Right. FDR was the inventor of the first hundred days emergency strategy. That 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 idea of the first hundred days is a is a you know was a, a PR a figment of FDR's imagination and it's haunted Democrats ever since. But Biden thought, okay, not only will we do this administratively, we'll also do it legislatively. I am I am because I'm doing it this way. I am uh, FDR, and of course, had he never had that delusion. I, I don't think that he would be in the position that he's in now. And had Trump not had the delusion that he had unique abilities to kind of shut down, you know, American sort of conventional ways in which America had resolved its social contract in certain areas, he might have survived. He might have survived and thrived also. With that, in terms of surviving and thriving, I want to talk to you a little bit about our friends at Policy Genius, um, uh, because look, if someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance, which can give you peace of mind, so that if something happens to you, your loved ones will have a financial cushion for rent or mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. And typically life, life insurance gets more expensive as you age. So it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop. To find the insurance you need at the right place, price, click the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions. 
In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius are on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options and make decisions with confidence. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies, whether you're just starting to shop or have questions about your active policy. They're your independent advocates offering free and unbiased advice. So head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Noah Rothman, you are tickled pink. Tickled. You are beyond tickled. By a policy shift on the part of the Biden administration that our very own Adam White, who I should now say is a senior fellow at AI and co-director of the Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Those are the those were the credentials that I didn't have at, at hand to cite uh, when when he started. But Adam, before he was this policy poobah, was as he tells us an air, a lawyer dealing with energy, and so we have energy policy shifts relating to inflation and oil and gas. Noah, yes, so. Adam will uh, correct me if I say anything wrong here because he knows more about the subject than I do for sure um, with his policy background. But yesterday, very quietly, the administration revealed that it was sort of a little partially repealing one of those very early executive orders, I think a first week executive order, uh, halting the provision of leases for oil and gas exploration on federal lands. Now, They're not releasing very much of that land. I think it's roughly 20% of what industry experts wanted. And they're splitting the baby a little bit by uh, raising the royalty fees. Uh, You pay on a yield from such property for the first time in 100 years. Um, So the idea here is to placate two different constituencies and will probably annoy both of them. Um, sufficiently so that they won't get any of the political benefit that they would have gotten if they had have just chosen one course of action and stuck with it. However, there is a real opportunity here from a political perspective, one that I, I think is valuable to exploit, to communicate to the recalcitrant, ideologically blinkered environmentalists who um, are very put off by this decision that they are forsaken This administration had no choice but to do this. They have asked Americans to shoulder a financial burden as a result of uh, a foreign crisis over which we had no control. And it is your obligation as as a presidential administration to do everything within your power to relieve that burden that you are asking Americans to shoulder. They had not wanted to do that. They wanted you to suffer for two different causes. One for the cause of freedom in Europe and another for a grand hypothetical objective of lowering the temperature of the planet Earth. Um, They've dropped one of those, which they should be lauded for doing. And in so doing, in lauding them, we will communicate to that pressure group that has captured this administration that you're not the captain anymore. Huh. All right. (laughs) So you are not the captain. Thanks for that uh, rousing reaction. No, I, I, I mean, it, because uh, that was a very that was a very melodramatic conclusion. We were all just shocked, you know, to our to our, you know, to here we are in the Captain Phillips in a dramatic uh, moment. It was very dramatic and I, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, but are they the cat? Were they ever the captain? Or is the point here that they're only the captain as long as nothing is going wrong? They get to be the captain. The minute that something is going wrong, 
The minute gas prices go up two cents a gallon, everybody panics. Now, I'm not saying they're up two cents a gallon. Obviously, they're up 75 cents a gallon, but I'm just, you just saying. You put your like, finger on it, John. I'm sorry to interrupt you that environmentalism is a luxury cause. It is right, it luxury is a, good. Yes. It is a luxury that you have in times of plenty to be concerned about environmental protection in ways that sap money out of your wallet, not just your wallet, people who can afford it, but everybody's wallet. It's the sort of thing you do um, in, when the sun is shining and it's summer. In the winter, you got to pare back and it's time to pare back. I, I, I mean, I wanted to read if I can find it and I'm having trouble finding it. Kamala Harris was out yesterday because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the Biden administration is going out to try to tell the country how great a job it's doing. Yes, I just said that the Biden administration is going out to tell the country what a great job it's doing, because this is what Democrats are saying they really need to do is to go out and tell the country what a great job they're doing, which is a problem because they're not doing a great job and they don't really have anything to say that is positive. Is she in the Easter Bunny suit when she's out there telling people that might help? By the way, can we talk about the Easter Bunny suit for a minute? Because the Easter Bunny suit, um, uh, it turns out that like uh, the head of messaging, the head of White House messaging was one of the two bunnies in the Easter Bunny suit. And when Biden went over to the receiving line to talk to people about things, the bunny who was the head of White House messaging ran over and waved the bunny's arms in Biden's face to get him away from the crowd before he said something. Well, uh, the rumor is he was talking about Afghanistan, evidently. That was the sort of rumor that was that he was started yeah. chatting about Afghanistan and the bunny put the kibosh yeah. on that. So, I mean, you literally, literally, that's a scene. I mean, it, it's not literally, but it literally could have been a scene out of Veep. It is a scene out of Veep. Selena Kyle intercepted by an Easter an Easter bunny before she could say something stupid. Uh, it was really, really striking. Okay, here I got it. This is Kamala Harris trying to talk up the administration's wonderful policies. Uh, this is from the Pool Report, a Monday night fundraiser in Southern California. Harris acknowledges the economy's hardships. Quote, now... Yeah, it costs more money at the pump, and we need to deal with that. We need to acknowledge, but we also need to keep with our program around making it easier to get by day to day, which means, again, going back to the child care, which means bringing down the cost of living, means looking at what we have an investment in affordable housing, what we should do in terms of bringing down the cost of prescription drugs, unquote. So that's really, first of all, it costs more money at the pump, but we need to bring down affordable. Ha- we need affordable housing. Okay, no that's really skills. helpful. Just really can't improvise in any setting. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, something occurred to me about the immense amount of self praise that the Democrats have been doing, and the tragedy that they have been attempting to, to say uh, has been created by the fact that they threw an enormous amount of money at, at, uh, at, at, at child poverty in 2021 over, over a year. And then the, the money and that supposedly lifted 15 million children out of poverty. And now that money is no longer being spent. And then, you know, and this is part of the, why aren't they getting credit for all the wonderful things that they do? Uh, so we can, I don't want to talk about the specifics of, you know, whether or not just handing people money actually raises people out of poverty, because of course this gets into the give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach a, t- 
teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime, right? I mean, that's the whole problem with welfare policy, uh, you know, as seen, you know, by Maimonides eight centuries ago. But uh, the child, here's the thing. Democrats want credit for having having thrown all this money in the relief package and therefore having gotten a, a year in which the child poverty numbers went down. And therefore, they should get, you know, they should have a good time at the midterms. When in the annals of human history do people vote somebody in because they gave money to somebody else? Child, the literal fact of creating a specific support for this specific population may be good, may be bad, may be noble, may be self-defeating, however you want to slice it. But going to the American people and saying, vote for me, we just spent an enormous amount of money helping other people and not you. Does this not, does it not compute that when you're going out to try to get people to vote for you, you want to tell them what you did for them and what they can expect you to do for them? I mean, you can say we're wonderful. You know what? Not only did all we do with all this great stuff for you, we did so much wonderful stuff for, for, for raising the poor out of poverty. But you can't say we raised the poor out of poverty, but you're, you're, you are facing uh, prices and costs that are 8% higher this year than last year, and we didn't give you anything. So mazel tov, congratulations, vote for us now. Am I missing something? I mean, am I being like unfair to the American people who are so kind-hearted and compatiously giving that they would really want to celebrate somebody who gave somebody else a lot of money, wrote somebody else a check? But you're not wrong, John. And I would suggest that if the Biden administration doesn't understand this, they need to go back and start reading The Federalist. Because from the very start, if I can get my Federalist hat on, one of the things Hamilton stresses, and I think Federalist about papers. it more and more, what's that? The Federalist Papers. Yeah, not the Federalist.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is this not the same thing? I've been reading this website, assuming it was Hamilton and Jay all these years. Um, Themes but, overlap. No, I think about this more and more. Hamilton's writings in The Federalist about how at the end of the day, the most important thing is administration. And actually, it's not just the laws you pass, but it's the laws that you pass that you actually administer and implement that improve life in America. And you see the Biden administration, you see its supporters, you see in other administrations, people love to point at the executive orders that were signed, the legislation that was signed. But at the end of the day, what actually matters is real results. And the, the American people aren't obligated to read the Federal Register every day and the congressional record and keep a tally of this legislation that's been passed. They get to vote based on the conditions of their lives. And, and again, this basic breakdown in what actual administration is and how what it's actually supposed to do and how we're supposed to judge it, I think is one of the great sort of signs of the time that the Biden administration can't get this straight. And, and by the way, John, a, a moment ago when you're talking about the Easter Bunny incident, I, I'm pretty sure you said Selena Kyle. And I, I, I know my- I'm sorry. Uh, I know so, my, yes. That would have been pretty Selena great. Myers. That would have been pretty Myers. great seeing the, seeing the Easter Bunny intercept Catwoman at the, <laughs> yes, at the White you. House. Yeah, Selena um, Meyer, I, not I Selena Kyle. I feel, I feel, I feel guilty. That's, that's, uh, that's a pop culture illiteracy on my part that is but really, really unacceptable. Can, this actually feeds into something that there's been a theme on this podcast that John has brought up time and time again, which I think is important, which is that 
things don't seem to work anymore. Basic things don't seem to work. And Biden, part of what Biden was elected to do isn't just to be not Trump, but he did promise to get things back to normal, right? I'm going to make things work. And the fact that, as you say, I totally agree, Adam, the fact that it doesn't feel like that in people's everyday experience is really harming them at a kind of existential level at the polls. Listen, the other thing about the FD, FDR uh, LBJ bid is that it's it's like a big bid, right? And so let's say, just for the sake of, ex- uh, of argument, though, I can't think of how that would have worked. Let's just say that Biden had a spectacularly successful year. Okay, there wasn't inflation. COVID, you know, COVID deaths went down, all of this, right? Of course he would have benefited. Of course there would have been a gigantic political shift in the United States comparable to the Reagan shift in the 1980s. In some ways that could theoretically still happen. I'm not, I I don't for the life of me understand how, but in theory it could happen. It's the second year of his presidency. But, you know, if you're going to swing for the fences, you're swinging for the fences. If you if you connect and you hit it out of the park and there are three men on base, you're going to get a grand slam. You're going to be Mike Trout. You're going to be the greatest player who ever lived and you're going to change the rules of the game. But if you swing for the fences and you whiff, then you're Dave Kingman. Then you end up as a as a theoretical power hitter who is a terrible player, not a good player, and you're going to reap the consequences of your failure. Like, you know, if you go along with a more modest agenda with a much more practical day-to-day effort to do what Christine is talking about, you don't raise expectations to dash them and you don't fail in the way that Biden has clearly spectacularly failed, by which I mean he didn't come into office wanting the main news story 14 months into his presidency to be that costs are up eight and a half percent over la- over this time last year. Nobody would want that. He didn't want that. He wanted something else. He wanted two or three different things to be his legacy a year in. And everything that is his legacy is crime is worse. Inflation is worse, you know, uh, and, and COVID didn't really get much better although COVID itself is getting better, but nothing that he did really benefited anybody on COVID. And, you know, he's going to reap the whirlwind and Democrats are going to reap the whirlwind because they, they made it, they made a play for world historical change. That was, that's what they wanted was world historical change. And what they got was failure. Uh, and so, you know, I don't even think saying that that they failed is a is a partisan thing to say. I'm saying if the main political issue a year into your presidency is eight and a half percent inflation, then you failed. Because you could have done 10,000 other things. Again, I don't know what exactly Trump's eight and a half percent inflation, but I suppose, you know. 12 percent economic growth could Trump eight percent inflation, you know. Not that you can create 12% economic growth, but I mean, he, he has only himself to blame and they got to go from now until November and Democrats are going through the five stages of grief, right? They're now, they're now, they're in, they were, they're, they were in denial because inflation was transitory and now they're in bargaining because uh, whatever, right? Denial, bargaining, anger, something and acceptance. I can't remember what the fourth is, but they're in the five stages of grief because death is coming in November. And I don't really know how bad, we don't know how bad the death is going to be. We don't know how significant the death is going to be. We don't know how, you know, how, 
how much wreckage will will be in their you know what they will find in their in their wake in november but um but watching the bargaining uh and the you know watching the denial and bargaining and the anger right which is it's not fair right it's not fair and look this 35 year old whelp in florida you know who is a Trump judge and therefore illegitimate by the fact that she was nominated by a president that I don't like is now throwing everything up in the air because she's a Trump judge and she's young and blah, blah. So you got anger, denial and bargaining. Uh, You'll never get to acceptance. Well, acceptance is uh, you don't think you'll get to acceptance. I mean, I'll put it this way. Given our political climate, you'll know that you've gotten to acceptance when there are no claims of uh, fraud or mismanagement after the election. Ah, well, okay. We're going to put that. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, you know, put a pin in that (laughs) and see where we are the second week of November uh, after the, after the, after the wreckage hits and whether or not it really didn't happen. Remember, remember, Obama accepted the shellacking in 2010. And then in 2014, he said, not enough people voted, so it doesn't count. And then guess what happened in 2016? So not enough people voted again or in the wrong places or whatever. Anyway, so with that, we Adam White of the Boyden Gray Center, the Gray Center for the Administrative State of the American Enterprise Institute, of the Biden Judicial Commission, of I don't even know how many, again, don't even cite your commission numbers because they're just headspin of America. And 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 Christine's go-to if she gets arrested. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and for Christine, Abe and Noam, John Pudwards, keep the candle burning.